0: Greetings and welcome to In the Finest Hour, your competitive 40k podcast featuring tips and tricks you can use in about an hour. This is your good host, Shalen Allen, and with me as often, Joshua Death,
1: the evil host. Yes,
0: this is one of our good and evil episodes where we cut out the middleman and just get straight to the point. The reason Sean is not here is that he did not attend the Capital City Bloodbath out in Ottawa, Canada, which was a fantastic a tournament. Five stars. It's not like he doesn't want to be here, it's just, it's hard to do a post-tournament analysis episode if you didn't attend the tournament. True story. So, have to ask you, Josh, I mean, I just had a heck of a plane trip back home, but how was your drive?
1: Honestly, the drive wasn't actually as bad as I anticipated. Uh, I only got slightly molested at the border, uh, it was just under an hour this time instead of two hours, so that was a plus. Woohoo! Right, and... It was actually a rather reasonable drive back. Uh, I think I got to chew through two movies and a couple episodes of a TV show I'd been watching. So yeah, it was pretty great.
0: Nice, nice. I watched Avengers Endgame on the flight home.
1: Oh, such a good movie.
0: Well, it's great. I went from Ottawa to Calgary and then from Calgary to Portland, which was just a little hop. And on the Calgary end of the flight, I was on a plane that had the where you could pick your movie. So I just picked Endgame and enjoyed myself because it was a four-hour flight and it's a three-hour movie. hey yo
1: Score. Honestly, yeah, it was actually a fairly reasonable trip. You know, sometimes it can be pretty monotonous and grueling, but this one was pretty solid. The drive through upstate New York is actually a pretty nice drive, and the weather was pretty solid, so it was a really enjoyable drive.
0: Nice, nice. For me personally, it was less turbulence going back than it was flying out. I got stopped at customs. This was the big drama because they had not figured out what was in my army case. Huh. So they had to take it all apart and they took selfies with the grotto, which was fantastic.
1: <laughs>
0: but I can't take my cell phone out of customs, so I don't have pictures of the customs agents taking pictures with my Knights.
1: <laughs> That's awesome.
0: But it still happened.
1: Freaking nerds.
0: Other than that, it was a completely uneventful trip. Made all my flights, got in okay, got on the tour, bus home okay... Managed to stay up till a good hour and get myself back on Pacific time. Gravy. Perhaps the lamest thing is I caught something when I was out there.
1: Oh, you got the crud, didn't you? You got the con crud?
0: I got something. Uh, and it could have been my dad brought it in from Singapore. I don't know which. Oof. So this episode is a little different than our standard episodes. We are doing, as stated earlier, a tournament analysis episode. And we are referencing back to the post-tournament tactics episode number 32 and the tournament ticks and strategies episode number 24. And we're gonna take concepts from both those episodes that we talked about and apply them to our Capital City Bloodbath experiences. And Josh and I had very different experiences.
1: Oh yeah. It was a great experience either way. In a good way. But they were different. (laughs)
0: Let's just start off with the with the pre-game stuff and setting yourself up for the tournaments. I'm going to have to ask you, Josh, what were you glad you did before you went into the tournament? What was the one thing you are like, ah, I'm so glad I did that?
1: Two, actually. And one of them was literally like scrambling the night before I left, but kind of went a little extra effort on this one. And I actually created like custom magic cards for all of my stratagems, my relics, my warlord traits, and all my psychic powers. And then I sleeved them in different colored sleeves. And so... Uh, it made it really, really easy in every game that I had this relic on this character and I literally just had the card right in front of me. If I used a
2: mm-hmm.
1: an additional warlord trait like Field Commander or whatever, I used it. If I had the strats, I had them right there with all the information right there on the card. So I wasn't having to look stuff up. My opponent could see it right then and there. They could look at all that information. It was really, really helpful.
0: All easy, fast access. Yes,
1: yeah, so it was very helpful uh, to have that, to be able to, not only for my opponent, but myself, And so that, and then I also like, I printed out the canicles page because I was running Admech and I was using those new Real Knight Armagers and I had their entire data sheet printed out. So it made it really easy so that every single time my opponent, you know, they needed to know something, it literally was right at their fingertips and I could just show it to them. So that was really handy, but it was also really handy for me because every single time I went to use it, I was rereading it. And it helped reinforce the correct verbiage or wording or whatever of the stuff I was using. So it was really, it was kind of double-edged sword. And I kind of did that last minute. Really happy I did that.
2: Woohoo!
0: What was your second one?
1: My second one was I remembered to grab my passport shoe. (laughs) I actually store my passport in a tennis shoe that I bought for my passport that sits on a shelf. Um, that is actually where I keep my passport now. In a homage to Val Heffelfinger, who was actually kind of like the MC of the stream this past weekend. So out of uh, shout out to Val, I have my own passport shoe that carries my passport when I'm home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do not use passport shoes. I use pockets and purses because I don't do shoes. <laughs> also, my feet are noticeably smaller than both of yours.
1: Yeah, no, it makes sense. I could totally hide a multiple passports in my shoes, so yeah, it makes sense.
0: If I tried putting a passport in my shoe, I'd probably break it. Right. And my foot. The thing I was really glad I did was double-checking my medicine permissions, because I take a lot of allergy medication, and I correctly realized I was allergic to Ottawa, so having all that extra medication on me was basically the thing that kept me from being able to continue to attending the tournament. Those were the two big things for me. I I did have a pre-tournament regret. I didn't manage my water nearly as well as I should have, and that was partly because the water there was really scratchy. Yeah,
1: I remember you mentioned that it wasn't feeling the greatest towards the end there. That makes... yeah.
0: Yeah, so that's partly why I'm sick, is because I didn't hydrate properly at the tournament, and I didn't have the common sense when we were at Walmart to go, hey, Josh, I need to go grab some bottled water.
1: Yeah, that would have been a wise decision. So yes, definitely I would classify that as a regret. Especially, I mean, if you know you're sensitive to water, too. And that's definitely something that I uh, would definitely want to do in the future for you. That's, yeah.
0: That was just Shay not thinking straight. I don't sleep well when I'm traveling, so unsurprisingly, I was not operating on a lot of sleep, so I wasn't thinking straight.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense.
0: My entire tournament has the whole, assume I got maybe two hours of sleep, and then look at how I did.
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, I definitely had a regret there. Mine was a lot less... Damaging. It had the potential to be, though. I guess, if hindsight being twenty twenty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I actually ended up not finishing the event. Primarily, the huge, largest reason is I did not read the player packet initially, and I was under the assumption that it was a five round tournament, not six. And unfortunately, my wife had plans to be working early Monday morning, and I had full intentions on driving back Sunday nights And unfortunately, it's roughly between an eight to twelve hour drive, depending on how long I get stuck at the border. Yeah. So waiting till around 7 or 8 o'clock at night to leave Ottawa would have put me in home around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, which would have been really rough. Driving that long and then turning around and, you know, getting up to deal with the kids, all that. It would have been a really, really, really rough day, even if I was able to make the drive, because I would have been exhausted. Yeah. So after I lost round four and then round five handily, Stephen Pampering beat me, just trounced me hard. I made the decision at that point to, you know, I anticipated it being five rounds. I just lost two really rough rounds. I normally dislike bowing out early. I normally do not like to quit a tournament. But I erred on the side of caution and decided to get on the road a little earlier. So that was a regret on my part. Because had I read the player packet initially, I would have made sure my wife took off enough time. Yeah, I could have stayed an extra night, so on and so forth. So my regret, and it's really dumb because it's probably the one thing I've preached more than anything, is read... The packet, which I did not do.
0: Well, on the other hand, the good news is you did get home safely, and that was good for everybody. Yes. For context, Josh left in the middle of round five there, because I was in the middle of a really delicate part of my game when he runs up and goes, Hey, I'm leaving. Yes. And I'm like, I'm trying to carefully, perfectly kill his Plague Bearer list.
1: Yep. It was not the time to be
0: doing this.
1: <laughs> After I had a soundly been uh, had a good thrashing from mr pampering that was when i decided to cut tail and run
0: <laughs> yeah in context for me i was playing a chaos plague bear list and with pure gray knights which means i have to be making him take out checks to remove those models so i have to perfectly almost kill them yeah pretty much so it's actually pretty delicate what i was doing there and that is the one game i didn't get finished on time incidentally but we'll get to that later Another thing we commonly talk about as a theme in our podcast is goals and expectations. I'd like to talk about mine a little bit. I went into this tournament under practiced, and I'll be the first person to admit that. I had maybe three games with this new Grey Knight list. And I've never actually run Purifier Rush before, and I was running some units I was less familiar with. like I didn't remember exactly how many attacks the Banner Bearer had, because I used him maybe three times in 8th edition. There was a bunch of like little stuff like that I just didn't have completely solidified in my head because these weren't the units I commonly used. So I walked into this tournament go- thinking, you know what, I'll go maybe two, four, probably one, five is not out of the question, and absolute wooden spoon would not surprise me. So I walked in knowing, I'll probably win the game because I'll probably like walk into the side of someone who doesn't fundamentally understand how my gimmick army works and then they'll like get destroyed. Yeah, And I was right. I did it, it happened twice.
1: What you did to the knights was hilarious.
0: Oh uh, we'll, we'll get to that. That's, that's a dumb story. That's fantastic.
1: <laughs>
0: but the other goal I had was to have an almost criminal amount of fun. I brought pom-poms and I'm super glad I brought the pom-poms partly because I got opponents to pom-pom with me and there's something really fun about pulling a pom-pom up and just waving when the dice are hot. It's just fun.
1: It was actually hilarious, especially because I decided to tuck the pom-pom into my back pocket and twerk every time I wanted to shake it. (laughs) And yes, you have not seen anything until you've seen a 300-pound man twerking in the middle of a uh, tournament with pom-poms hanging off my ass. It was amazing.
0: (laughs) It was pretty fantastic. And I I think it was good that we had that doubles tournament where you and I were playing and being the silliest possible. Because we walked in... With the right mindset. That was a great starting note.
1: Yes, it was. It was good times. Much much fun had.
0: <laughs> so what about your goals and expectations?
1: You know, I was ironically in a similar boat to you where I was underpracticed going into that tournament, which I knew going in because I had not played very much in the last couple months, there was a potential issue with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I didn't go in with any false hopes. You know, I was like, I'm not going to go 5-1. And it's funny because a lot of my friends are like, you know, because I said I wanted, you know, ideally I was looking at 4-2. You know, after I realized it was six rounds, I was like, you know, if I get 4-2, I'll be happy with that. And it wasn't me trying to be, like, overly modest or anything like that. It was more realistic. I mean, I, I knew the level of players at the event, and I knew that it was not practiced in the list. And, it, and I did modify the list pretty heavily before the event. So I knew the chances of me going really good were slim. And ironically, I made some of the exact mistakes uh, because of lack of practice and play that I expected to make. So I feel like had I finished out the tournament and played my sixth round, I probably would have wound up with that 4-2 goal. So I think I was right about where I was expecting to be. Um, Playstyle was close to where I was anticipating.
0: Mm-hmm. Much the same for me. As I said, I walked in under practiced with a pure grenades list, which I knew was atrocious because pure granites doesn't have a lot of good matchups. It has a lot of bad matchups. If someone brings an Imperial Knight, I'm kind of fucked. Oh, yeah. And I played three of them, unsurprisingly.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, granites have some rough matchups.
0: I didn't have any expectations about the terrain. I was kind of hoping it was a little denser than it was. It was the terrain at the tournament was very similar to the LVO this last year, where they had something fairly big in the center and then kind of eh around the sides at various levels of eh. And I got definitely board screwed in a few matchups where it's like, man, I could have used any other board here.
1: Yeah, there were a few tables that were really, really rough, and then there were some tables that were really solid. It was, matches were very terrain dependent. Yeah. I, I saw that in a lot of games, yeah.
0: And my list was extra sensitive, and I played on some pretty poor terrain boards, and unsurprisingly, playing nights on poor terrain boards will result in me losing the game. Not a lot I can do. Yeah,
1: so there's really not a whole lot you can do about that.
0: But given that, I still walked in. I I did about how I felt I would do. My opponents were about how I expected them to be. We still had a fantastic time. I mean, I got my ass kicked in four times and I still had a good time at this tournament, so.
1: It's, yeah.
0: That's a sign the tournament is doing well.
1: And it's an amazing event to go to in general anyways.
0: Yeah. I'm a little sad I didn't get to play Gene Steeler Cole. I haven't done that yet, so I haven't really experienced it. Though I did get to experience my first crass night, finally.
1: Oh, and how was that?
0: I didn't win the game, so how do you think that went?
1: (laughs) About as expected, I would assume. (laughs)
0: Yes, that was actually in the matchup with the Triple Knights where I blew one off the table. We'll get to that later. (laughs) That'll be in the second half of the episode. (laughs) Speaking of which, the Quartermaster is calling. She has a new laptop computer for me for our recording. Ooh! So I'm going to go investigate what that is.
1: Why do you always get the good toys? Because you're good?
0: Yes, also I bribe people.
1: Well, that's not very good.
0: It's good enough for the Imperium of Man.
1: (laughs) Alright, we'll be back.
0: and we are back and the laptop is amazingly red shiny i know i'm so excited all right so in this particular half of the episode we are going to be talking about our takeaways and a little bit about the games more specifically as opposed to kind of the general set of things and then we're going to jump into some listener questions to kind of round up last a little bit first thing is i discovered something really really cool this tournament because all but one of my games finished at the end of turn 6 completely Didn't get tabled, which is pretty good for me because I've actually had trouble with that in the past.
1: That is awesome.
0: And in so doing, I learned something about the ITC missions I had not realized before. And that is that if you complete the game to the end, you should be getting about 20 points in your loss. And the reason for that is you should be holding or killing all six turns. That's 12 points. And you should be getting your secondaries. That's another 12 points. And realistically, you're going to miss one of those at some point because something will happen because you're not winning the game. So there's a total of four points there in Fudge. And that should just kind of be the standard loss for a solid player is 24 points. Seems right. Yeah. Unless they have like a complete stomp out because things go screw bar turn one and there's no recovery. Outside of that a good ITC player should be getting about 24-point loss. And that was not something I had realized walking into the tournament.
1: That is interesting, yeah. You know, and, and it's, I guess, that much more of an incentive to remind people, finish your games. Yeah. Where even if you lose, you're still walking away with solid points.
0: My previous impression had been 16 points was a fairly high-end loss, and the answer is, mm, no, 20-something is actually kind of the high-tier loss, is what I would call that. That's... If you're getting lo- if your losses are at least 20 points, you're doing quite well for yourself.
1: Yeah. Honestly, a 20-point loss is a good loss.
0: My losses were for context, I had 116, this was the game I didn't finish, and then my other losses were 18, 20, 20, and 22.
1: Those are actually really good losses, honestly.
0: Yeah, against Knights with Gray Knights.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was solid. Very respectable.
0: Yeah. So that and that's also a sign I'm playing the mission better and this will tie into a listener question later on, but that's what playing the mission means. And it means that if you play the mission properly, you should be scraping about 24 points out of any game, no matter what. Yeah. Did you have any particularly big takeaways that like hit you up the side of your head and you're kind of like, whoa?
1: <laughs> yeah, I actually had a couple. So I'd have to say one of my biggest was I had a whole new appreciation for works after my game with uh Steven Pamperain. Mm. You know, I've, I've played and seen a lot of orc armies over the last couple months, but I really hadn't seen a top-tier player play them. Okay, yeah. And, I mean, Steven is a really strong player, and orcs are his jam. Like, orcs are really and truly his bread and butter. And I got to see orcs really played well. And it was really awesome to watch that happen. I mean, downside was I was on the receiving end of it. And I was making a lot of mistakes, but that was really awesome to watch. It was really good. So that one was huge. I loved that takeaway. It actually gave me some really huge insight into orcs. And then the the other one for me was watching how match, uh, 8th edition in general, how dependent matches are on going first and the terrain layout of a table is huge. Like, it is so huge. Mm -hmm. You can literally win a game by just getting uh one table over another and you can lose a game by not going first or second and not going first or second losing a game that's kind of been around for a few editions that's kind of been a a, a trend but mm-hmm. it, it really does feel in this edition that those two factors are monster factors now and that was a that was a huge thing for me to see how much it mattered so that was kind of a a, a huge eye opener for me walking away from this event
2: yeah
0: also, for me personally, there was the whole fact I did gauge my goals and my ability correctly. And at the same time, I'm sitting there, I'm like, hey, I've actually leveled up because these are matches I'm walking and expecting to lose, and I'm walking away
1: with 20 points.
0: That's pretty good for myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, because especially because you were expecting, I mean, you were walking and expecting to get, you know, trounced, and, and you're actually walking out with more points in a loss than some people were walking away from with the win.
0: Yeah. I was the highest person that went 1-5, and I was actually the best of Grey Knights there.
1: And there was actually a few Grey Knights there, which is kind of funny to say.
0: There there were three Grey Knight players in total, and I was the best of the three of us.
1: <laughs> but yeah.
0: Not, that's much to say, but it was my claim to fame, dang it.
1: No, own it. It's yours. You've always been.
0: Yeah. So the last thing, uh, big takeaway, is I, I've always been threatening to bring the pom-poms. That was one of the most successful dumb threat ideas that I followed through on. They are forever in my tournament bag now.
1: Yeah, that, that was fun. They were enjoyable. kind of helped It helped lighten the mood. I mean, a uh, prime example was like that last game we did in the doubles event where our opponent literally double dog dared me mm. to charge the, what was it, the Chitin Ravager? Yeah. With, uh, what was it? five pink horrors
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah the fact that they didn't die was pretty good
1: right they charged they didn't die in overwatch and they even didn't die from the combat phase like yeah they were pink horrors of awesome
0: i also think the best part of that game was the vortex of doom doing entirely more damage than it should have for a stupid gambit like lol
1: 26 wounds out of a vortex of doom most successful vortex i've ever seen it was amazing
0: The second best I'd seen was killing all three of Sean's uh, Cold Star Commanders in one go.
1: That would be upsetting. If I was a Tau player.
0: He doesn't like talking about that one. Who'd have thought?
1: Uh, But yeah, no, it was a great event. Had a lot of fun with the, like, the pom-poms really just kind of lightened the mood. Um, It was just a really, really awesome time. Had a lot of fun. And some pretty huge takeaways, actually. I mean, especially since I was, you know, wanting to lean more towards Marines still. And I feel like Mm -hmm. it gave me a nice, solid baseline to build off of going into the new Codex. So uh, that was also a really big takeaway for me, too. Getting to really see the Marines in action and where their strengths and weaknesses were before I came into the new Codex. So it was good.
0: Yeah. For Codex, the new Codex didn't change their stat line all that much. So that is actually a very relevant baseline for him to have.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That That was mainly my thought is, you know, this is the way they're playing now with some minor tweaks on how like the stratagems and chapter tactics and abilities will work but the the baseline of the army itself is still there so how does it adapt adjust get better or worse so on and so forth so it was that was really valuable to me to be able to have before the new codex dropped
0: yeah let's do kind of we're, we're gonna do this a little quick and dirty because we're not gonna stretch this out is we're gonna do kind of the best game and why and the worst game and why kind of the good and the ugly of our day one and day twos okay would you like to start or do you want me to start Oh, go
1: ahead. I'd love to. I'd love to hear it.
0: Okay. So my best game day one. I actually was not one of the games I won. Uh, the game I won was. We'll get to that. I, I'm not. I'm not going to talk about that one terribly much, other than the Tau player outran his screens, which is a mistake against a Smite army.
1: Yeah, that's no bueno.
0: I won that game thirty-five to like ten or something. Ouch! Brutal. The best game I had that day was against a list that was three Imperial knights three fancy Forgeworld Dreadnoughts, and a Watchmaster. Because they were all Death Watch Dreadnoughts. So this list is really unbalanced. It does exactly what you think it does. It featured the crass knight with the Gatling cannon and all the shooty, mixed shooty stuff. It featured uh, a knight archon, one of the Forgeworld ones that's tall and skinny with the sword and the little shooter gun. And then it featured one more knight that had, like, a cannon and a sword, and I don't remember if it's a paladin or whatever, because I can't tell the names apart, but it's a melee shooting knight. And then he had a couple different dreadnoughts of various types. He had a heavy bolter dreadnought, a quad las dreadnought, and then a quad-auto-cannon dread. Damn. And a smash-punchy watch captain. That was basically the whole list. And these were the fancy Forge World Leviathan ones, so they were hitting on two-ups and stuff.
1: Ooh, those are brutal.
0: Yeah. So... This is one of the games where the opponent did not realize what my army did and left his Archon Knight standing right next to all my smites. It was removed from play after 7d6 mortal wounds went into it. (laughs) It would then explode, and I pulled all of the guys that had pulled themselves into line of sight out of line of sight from the explosion.
1: That's brutal.
0: (laughs) So he didn't get to shoot me for all his trouble. That game was really interesting because I felt like I had a better than usual chance of doing it because he had no way to hide from my psychic abilities. They were just going to go into the side of him. He was no defense. So that game was all about sacrificing and tempo control because if I could control the tempo in that game, I could make the engagements happen on my terms, which meant that I could be smiting into the knights on my terms because if I leave my guys exposed, they're dead. He had way too much firepower for them to withstand. That whole game was this cat and mouse thing and I was actually got to use rhinos to move block. It was pretty fantastic. I got to really show off some of my great skills there. I still lost the game and part of that was like I forgot one of my psychic phases towards the end, which was stupid. Nice. Because I still had some hit in me and I could have dropped a knight that was otherwise problematic and just left myself with a dreadnought. I got all but one of his knights dead. And his last knight was on like a wound. A single wound. I needed to do a Grey Knight's Might to get rid of it.
1: <laughs> Been there.
0: So I, I could have pulled that out. As I said, I forgot a psychic phase, which I just left that was because I'm trying to play the level where I don't do takebacks anymore. So I didn't. But still a fantastic game and it still has the story of my opponent just not knowing how my army worked and making a very, very, very poor decision unknowingly. I can see that, yeah. Well, it's pretty hard to open the game with, uh, your knight's gone, and she lost a total of six Grey Knights for your trouble.
1: It's a good trade. Sounds like a good trade. Uh Yeah,
0: it was a very good trade. But my very worst game was the game against the Castellan list with the guard and the Blood Angels detachment.
1: That sounds familiar.
0: I did not have a means of stopping that list from doing what it was going to do to me. I was playing on an open terrain table... And it was like, Castellan picks up rhinos, rhinos don't get to get close enough, guard pick up grey knights, Mephiston, like, blocks my deep strike. It was pretty bad. That sounds it. I was like, maybe I could have done some traps and stuff, and my opponent was bad about pulling things out of combat when he needed to, so I actually got to do some shenanigans there, but for the most part, that game went as completely expected, and I just kind of sat there and went, great! That was fun.
1: Makes sense, makes sense. Also, it's a very... I mean, it's a list like you. You haven't seen that list, you know, a hundred times.
0: Yeah. I was like, oh, do I have to run on this table? Nope. Yeah. Great. Uh, I hope I go first.
1: Yeah. Didn't go first. Oh, okay. Well, that sucked.
0: Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. When it raids of pours, I guess. (laughs) That was that entire game.
1: Right. Well, my end, I'd have to say day one, my worst game was, ironically, the one I won. I won early on. Well, I, I won all three of my first day games, but... Uh, It was actually my very first game, and it was, I want to say my worst game more, in my performance was the worst. Uh, Luck pulled me through that game, not Mm. my skill. I made a couple really big play mistakes early on that very well could have and should have cost me. I got lucky on my first turn. I was playing against the four repulsor list. Ah, yeah. And I got very, very lucky on that first turn and was able to kill three of the four repulsors on the first turn. Oh. And it was it was luck uh like i was doing exactly the amount of damage needed to kill it rather than any extra or just let you know just under where you have to waste another unit to shoot at it to finish it like it was just i was really lucky in that regard so
2: Mm -hmm.
1: luck pulled me through but play wise of the first day it was my worst game because i made a lot of very bad mistakes that had luck not been there would have cost me the game so
0: could you go into those mistakes just a little bit is there
1: oh yeah so like prime example Right out the gate. I forgot to use prepared position stratagem.
0: Okay, yep.
1: I lost uh, an entire intercessor squad and another three or four of the other intercessor squad on that first turn, primarily to negative one AP weapons. Okay. And I was rolling threes, but threes weren't good enough because I did not use prepared position. So, you know, it would have easily probably saved me half a squad. So that was huge. Yep. As well as... Two of my characters were out of position on the deployment, and had my first turn not gone as well as it did, that he would have made me regret that first turn's movement, which was bad. He very well could have taken advantage of that, had mm-hmm. three repulsors not died that turn. So that was another mistake. Mm-hmm. Another one was overextending. You know, you always tell people not to overextend. And when I once I killed three repulsors in that first turn, I got aggressive and I wanted to push to... Kind of do the killing blow. And, I mean, obviously, Bobby G was still on the table. And he is never, ever to be underestimated. And I did. And it very well could have cost me. I mean, was it going to cost me the game at that point? I don't think so. But it definitely could have cost me some significant points. And so, mm-hmm. those were some really big ones in there that I did not do. And could have cost me really bad. So, All right. the dice really had to carry me on that one.
0: Uh, I appreciate you sharing those with us and our listeners. These are the kind of mistakes people make.
1: Hard of being human. you you're I mean, no one's perfect, and you're gonna fuck up. yeah. And the biggest thing
0: I forgot a psychic plays and I played gray Knights, okay?
1: And you run a psyker army, exactly, right? so that that one was big. And then my best game of the day, I would have to say was again my third game against a dark Elder Army. okay. That one was a gentleman by the name of Isaac. Running the uh, kind of semi-quintessential is a lot of Venoms loaded with guys.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He had the two Flyers and the three Ravagers. And and he actually had a couple units of Mandrakes sprinkled in, which was kind of a neat, neat touch. But that game was very cat and mouse for a good half the game. A lot of back and forth, a lot of, you know, saber dancing here and not wanting to commit. And we were both really kind of playing really, really tight games. And it was really awesome. Very, very tactical And then on turn three, it was at that point where I made the commit. I'm like, all right, I'm committing to it. I'm going to make I'm going for it. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, he had to answer back and do some significant damage to a couple of the main units that were out there. And it just happened to be the time where his dice really didn't deliver as much as he wanted, didn't do as much damage as he needed. And on that following turn, I was able to kill the rest rest of the Flyers and the Ravagers, which was pretty much 80% of his shooting. Mm Mm-hmm and at that point all he had left was a couple of venoms a couple of characters and some infantry and i still had all three knights it was it was just clean up at that point but up until that point in the game it was very 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 back and forth could go either way and he played it all the way through played it all the way to turn 6 and you know it's not like he gave up when it happened but we both kind of saw the writing on the wall and was like well crap this is going to be rough for you so but he was a great player great sport i mean as it's, it's canada i mean they're like 90% of them are amazing anyways. Mm-hmm. But that would probably be my best game just because it was definitely the most hard fought and very rewarding in the in the, the counterplay and play that was going on on the table. So that was awesome.
0: So my best day two game was against the Plague Bear and, and the reason why I'm calling it my best game is it's the one where I did some of the really coolest tactical stuff I'd done all tournament and I have the most improvement to get out of it. The problem for the Plague bear list is it does not like getting smitten into and then shot at and then charged. It really hates that, and Granites rock that
1: shit. <laughs> smitten. <laughs>
0: smitten, yes. As we alluded to with Josh walking over telling me he was leaving, I was in the middle of like, this is no, no, I am doing something really hard right now because I can't afford to kill these Plague Bearers outright. He still has two CP left. Right. And managing when things died was something I used that game and I used very strongly. But on the same time, I wasn't with the tempo fast enough, so I didn't quite get the game done to the end. And I didn't get things killed quickly enough. So there were some things I could have definitely done differently there and improved. I realized I should have just started everything on the board. I didn't need to deep strike that game. I should have been a little more careful protecting Crow because he was my kind of protectable gate of infinity. And that became very important turns and five, Oh yeah because i didn't have gate left and that was important that i didn't
1: have it there gate is so valuable late game so valuable late game
0: yeah so i should have been care- more careful with crow but that game was really satisfactory in the fact that my p- opponent had to be really really careful about everything he did because i could hit him back and make him pay for anything he did wrong and did it was a great game in that regard because it's like I have to be super on top of it, and he has to be super on top of it, or one of us is going to cave in. It was super fantastic. My worst game that day was, again, it, it was a knight plus a bunch of hellhounds list. Oof. And uh, on a fairly bare table, again.
2: Oh dear.
0: And it was bad for the same reason the first day's game was bad. It was, uh, and this was funny because my opponent's like, oh god, what am I gonna do about our smites? And the answer is, my smites get out and they have zero staying power and you win the game. That is what happened.
1: Sounds about right.
0: Yeah, so it was like, ah, shit. I could have done better hugging in that game. I should have probably gone for some shitty assault charge hugging and maybe, like, use the rhinos themselves to tank the overwatch against the hellhounds. Because they're actually pretty good at that. But I didn't set myself up to do that well and thus I kind of just host myself for no
1: apparent reason. Brutal.
0: I did watch a Dreadmaster kill a knight, though. That was pretty fun. Turns out knights don't like getting hit with demon
2: hammers. (laughs) Who knew? Who knew?
0: But how about you?
1: Well, I'd have to say best game of the day. I mean, obviously, I only played two games that day. I didn't actually get my third in. So a little bit more of a limited pool for me. But best game of the day would definitely be my first game against Eric Marco. First off, uh, I got to preface this. Eric and I have faced off about four times over the last uh, year or two. And it was irony because the last two times he and I have fought... I had amazing, amazing, amazing dice, and he was just rolling ice blocks. I mean, he was just could not roll. I mean, it was it was way, way, way below average. I mean, like, horrendously below average. And that was the last two times we played. And, you know, we both stepped up to the table this time, and I was like, all right, buddy, you're due. This this one's you.
2: Uh-huh.
1: All right, you're going to roll good, I'm going to roll bad. And he looks at me, he's like, no, that's exactly why I'm not going to roll good, because you always roll good and I roll bad. So we both had opposite views of what the dice were going to do that game. I I, I was right, woohoo, I was right which also means I lost horribly Uh, (laughs) 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 so I want to caveat that so, you know, and you guys have heard me say this before, you never say you lost a dice because I didn't lose the dice, the dice didn't help the situation, but I lost because I made mistakes, and that is exactly what I did, this is also, this is one of those tables where, you know, there was one large piece of train in the middle, which had to get offset to the side because of the objectives and Other than that, there was really no other terrain on the table. It was pretty wide open. And I was fighting a triple knight list, like triple knight crusaders. And so uh, that was brutal, especially when he went first. So I was like, ouch. It started off kind of rough, but I made a couple huge, huge, huge mistakes early game. One of the biggest ones was I deployed all my marines on the flank rather than in the middle with the knights. Mm. and so he was able to focus on the knights and then after the knights come after the marines and in essence he was able to fight my army a piece at a time rather than having to fight all of it so that was rough and then of course I'm sure you guys have heard Sean and I say multiple times where never leave yourself in a position where the dice can screw you because if you do they will and ironically this game happened to have one of the one of those incidents one of those moments that happened that you just don't believe to happen and it was like massively tilting and it was somewhere around turn three. I was already on the ropes. It was a rough, you know, I was I already lost all the vehicles. I had some Marines left and they were kind of fighting it out. And I had his warlord knight at 17 wounds. So he had seven wounds left on this knight. And I had two, three man intercessor squads that were left pretty much right next to this knight. And I had Pedro Cantor and everyone was literally about an inch, inch and a half away from the night.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, we had plenty of movement to move around, mm-hmm. but we were in a forest and we just said i would just move him up right next to him and just right there in the forest, okay? So then I go to declare a charge with Pedro against the knight. He's probably the best one to handle the overwatch, which he was. He only took two wounds. He was down to four. He was good. Ready to go. Yeah. Roll my charge. Snake eyes. Which, I'm only an inch away from him, so 99% of the time wouldn't be an issue, except...
0: But you're in a forest, so minus two.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And did I need to be in that forest? No, I had plenty of movement. I could have been outside that forest. But I made an assumption. I didn't play it fully. And Pedro failed the charge. So then at that point, I was committed. I had to charge with the other two units. and have a choice. So the both three-man units charged the knight. Both get blown away in Overwatch. So all that's now left is Pedro Cantor standing there, staring at a knight. That didn't end well for Pedro. And so this is one of those times where, again, it was a play mistake. That was a mistake made. On my part so there were definitely mistakes made in the game yeah mistakes that I were very valuable for me though because I was able to walk away from the game and learn some valuable information for those mistakes so that was huge but play wise it was my best game because I really I not only learned a lot of the game but I learned a lot from both my opponent Eric's a great guy he and you know I've played multiple times we love our games and so he and I were actually able to sit afterwards even kind of talk chatted got some feedback you know um because as some may or may not believe even at the top level play with top tables, it is still insanely valuable for me as a player to sit down with my opponents and talk with them about you know, concepts, ideas they had with how I they thought I played the game or didn't play the game. Ideas they may have that they would have done differently. Just because one player's top and one's not does not mean their opinion is not valuable.
0: So in the game with the Hellhounds player... I recommended to him to like, drop a Hellhound to take some Sentinels, because he has six Hellhounds. That's saturated.
1: Yeah, he's hitting diminished return with those, yeah.
0: So I said, get two Sentinels and some more screen bodies. And the reason for that is the Sentinels can go sit back and be engineer units. Not because you want to send the scouts forward, but because you want to hold them back and have them hold objectives all game.
1: They are good engineers, aren't they?
0: Yeah, and he just sat there and went, oh my god, I didn't even think about that. Because he was considering taking up a grade, but he didn't want to deal with the Sentinels. And I said, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Oh yeah. Sentinels are secretly good cheese for you.
1: They're just not combat units.
0: Yeah, and he just didn't even think about it that way and went, oh my god. There's good feedback he got from someone who he kicked his teeth in. Just saying.
1: Yeah, there's always good response there. And then, of course, there's my worst game of the day, which was my game against Stephen pampering now, ironically, again, has nothing to do with the play from my opponent. Steven plays a great game. I actually learned quite a bit about orcs from him, as I previously mentioned. But play-wise, on my part, mm-hmm. stupid, stupid, oh, Jesus, mistakes left and right. I mean, um, you know, and, and I want to caveat, they, there weren't, they weren't rules mistakes, they were play mistakes. Mistakes make the play in the game.
0: Pilot error.
1: Yes, I chose the wrong assassin, first off. I chose the Ecologist of the Vindicare, because I anticipated, because he had Grotz, right? And he had a shock attack gun. And he's just going to grot shield the shock attack gun, so Vindicare's not going to be able to kill him anyways. Mm-hmm. But he also had flash kits, mm-hmm. which are like the bane of uh, uh, Primaris. And so I was going to shoot the flash kits turn one with all of my guns if I had the opportunity. Yep. But he was just going to grot shield the, the flash kits, which is exactly what he did. He grot shielded the flash kits. Ironically, he grot shielded the flash kits with grots that I couldn't even see. Yep. But they were still closer. So he denied me the ability to even kill the grots first, which was brutally good. But then on top of that, had I taken the Vindicare, I could have actually shot one or the other. Because if he grot shields for the flash kits, then I can snipe the character. If he grots shields for the character, then I get to shoot the flash kits. So that was a major, major mistake on my part. Um, I also mismoved and had a unit straddling a wall, which ended up denying them the ability to get fully into the combat. Mm-hmm. And then I also uh, made a couple more mistakes with moving. I mismoved a knight and allowed it to get pinned in by Gretchen, um, to where and it was one of the knights with only four attacks. So it would have taken me forever to clear him out. And then the coup de grace on it was also, turn two rolls around and I literally forgot to bring the assassin in, Ooh. which was even more. I mean, it was and it was stuff like that. I allowed a unit to one of the other knights to get pinned against the board. Wasn't able to. Uh, wasn't that he was locked in combat. He just couldn't get past. Because I let him get pinned in. So just a lot, a lot of play mistakes. And of course, Steven's a good player and he was going to take advantage of those mistakes. And so Mm -hmm. that was probably my worst game just because I played horribly. Definitely my worst game and that's why.
0: Yeah. Games I found worse personally were ones where I had minimal interaction. And the games I found best were the games where I had a lot of interaction and ability to
1: interact. Those are highlights. That's what keeps the game fun.
0: Yeah, and that was the kind of the same for both of us. It was like games where we played really well and had a lot of interactability, and then games where we just messed up or didn't have options. Fun fact about Unbalanced Great Night Lists, some games you just lose.
1: Right. Not because you did something wrong, but just because you lose.
0: <laughs> yeah. I will say a huge shout out to all six of my opponents. You were all fantastic gentlemen. I had a fun, fun time. Love all the guys
1: uh 100 i would agree i love playing in canada anyways there it's a great place to play but i definitely love the capital city bloodbath a lot of the players are just really great players high quality of play too it's actually really high caliber playing but really really super stoked games so uh definitely shout out to every one of my opponents there
0: all right uh we will also do a quick shout out to the honest wargamer and 40k stat center for doing the stream at capital city bloodbath it was the best 40k stream you will ever see go watch it
1: I will 100% concur. It is probably the most professional 40K stream that I have seen done yet. I think they really just kind of set the bar of what is going to be expected out of 40K streams moving forward and really, really, really well done. Like just hands down well done. If you haven't seen it, log on to Twitch, go see it. It was really awesome.
0: I will also throw out there, it features sexy British voices. So if you're a girl who's a sucker for that, you're going to enjoy yourself. True story.
1: I definitely want to throw one more shout out, though. Uh, my Actually, my first round opponent was, they actually have their own podcast. They're called the Drunken Dreadnought Podcast. Really great guys, and their modeling was phenomenal, and just really great players all around, just an uh, amazing crew. So I recommend anyone gets a chance, definitely go check out the Drunken Dreadnought Podcast. They're a really great set of guys.
0: Also, spoiler alert, we're going to collab with them at some point, because they're that cool.
1: They're that awesome.
0: All right. So, for once, we have some listener questions, because this is an analysis episode, and our listeners asked us some questions, specifically our Patreon listeners. So, for $5 a month, you can join our Patreon chat and get in on this action and get these detailed questions directly answered for you. As
1: Lots of memes. Dank memes, dank memes.
0: Dank memes. Speaking of which, we'll do a quick shout-out thank you to Dank Muse for doing the music, Stephanie Sherman for doing our t-shirts, and Rylan Woodrow for doing
1: our art. Yes, and another definite throw out there to anyone that is interested, please, as always, if you're interested in being featured on our show, sponsoring the show in any way, shape, or form, please don't hesitate. Reach out to us at inthefinesthour at gmail.com, or you can find us on our Facebook page at In The Finest Hour, or on our Patreon. Please do not hesitate. Reach out to us and uh, chat. Always open to options.
0: To start with danushta i think who said how do you deal with or are you prone to with list impatience
1: ah. <laughs>
0: which is followed by i'm notorious for changing mine every game and i don't know how to stop
1: yes uh so shay i don't know if you want i'll jump on this one because i have list add like you would not believe
0: you have list add i am not list add so i don't have this problem
1: So it is a problem I've actually struggled with for years. One of the hardest ones I had was I actually wouldn't even just change my list. I would literally completely faction jump. Like, all right, I played Grey Knights. Now I'm going to go play Tyranids. And the problem you run into with this, and I'm sure this is exactly why Danusta is asking this, is you don't actually get familiar enough with the list to really master it. And so you're always kind of struggling because you can't actually get good. One of the things I highly recommend is if you're in a tournament setting, like if you're playing events, you need to keep that list you've been playing. Keep what you know.
2: Mm-hmm. If you have
1: not practiced the new list at all, don't change it. Yeah. If you do want to change a list because you're still in the process of streamlining or tweaking the list, that's fine. My best advice I can give is never change a list off of one game, number one. Number two, never change a list off of outliers. Like if your, your opponent just had this really amazing turn of dice and it just kind of blew you off the table don't change your list because of that because that's not changing your list off good information it's changing your list off of extremes that may or may not happen so don't let that influence why or why you would not change a list if you're just tweaking a list like i'm going to adjust that unit this or that then that's fine stop yourself though about two to two or so weeks before any event you're prepping for do not change your list again before the event even if you have ideas you come up with like oh man i should have done this don't do it for that event write it down wait till after the event Yes. Then change it. All right. Because you need those two weeks to dial in that list because that's what you're running at the tournament. Even if you say, okay, my list is locked, but I'm just going to try these changes. Don't. Because then you're going to get to that event and those changes are going to be in your head and you're going to make mistakes. Worst case scenario, you actually make rules mistakes because all of a sudden you're like, all right, uh, I've got this weapon option on this unit because that's what I'm prepping for. So that's what's in your head. But you don't actually have that in this list. So now, you just inadvertently cheated because you thought you had weapons you don't actually have. I heavily caution, those last two weeks, don't change your list. Keep your list, play the list, know it. Afterwards, start making those tweaks.
0: So, also, but what we mean by tweaks is you can tweak a unit or a war gear choice.
1: Yeah, you're not overhauling the list. You're not like, I'm going to remove this entire detachment and put in a whole new one. That's not what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, something that may help you, Dendusta, to not want to to have that drive to change. What I actually used to do to keep me from swapping is write lists to beat your list. Mm-hmm. It it satisfies that need because that's what it is. It's a need. Write something new to beat your list. There you go. It's it's a twofold win for you because one, it's going to teach you other armies and how you're going to end up basing them and how they're going to want to destroy you, and two it may actually shine some holes in your list that you may want to tweak and change. So it's kind of a win-win for you, and nobody knows your army better than you do. So no one's going to be able to tailor a list better than you will. And so it kind of still fills that itch of, like, I'm going to get to, you know, I'm going to tweak this. I'm going to, all right, I'm going to find it. I'm going to make this awesome list. And inadvertently, you may end up wanting to play it eventually. Who knows? But it'll kind of fill that void for you, fill that gap without actually fully altering your, List before you really get a chance to master it up.
0: Yep. All right. I've said my piece on that question. That is, I don't have that problem.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Slipkid asks, "I've been upping my play significantly in the last six months. However, I've been hitting a ceiling at the last few GTs I've gone to. Usually, when this ha- what happens is the first couple of rounds I do well, but I get an opponent or a matchup where I just can't get past a certain level, be it skill wise or mentally. I've been struggling with it for a while now, and I'm just in a lull of sorts." What do you do when you reach this point, and how do you get past it?
1: Oh, I've been there too many times.
0: I have been there for a while, because I was never really able to break that four-victory barrier with Grey Knights back when I could still ally things to them.
1: How did you overcome it?
0: So, one of the things I've been doing to overcome it is I've been studying other factions, because that's not something I've done yet. And by studying, I mean playing lists, building lists, talking lists... Dedicating my heart to them like I would my Grey Knights, and then taking that knowledge and using it so my Grey Knights are better. That is partly how I kicked that poor Tau player in the teeth, is because I've
1: learned Tau. True, you actually have been working on Tau, I remember that.
0: So that poor guy was like, I got all these tricks and shenanigans, I'm like, I know how your army works. Now you don't have an army.
1: True, very true.
0: So that is definitely something you can do. Another thing would be, if it's a skill-wise problem, is go find bigger fish than you. If you're one of the big fish and small pond problems, you got to go out and play bigger name players. This might involve going traveling to practice, honestly. It might be what you have to do there, but you're going to have to like break yourself out of your meta. Definitely travel farther.
1: Yes, for sure. A couple things. So I actually have struggled with this as well. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that actually one of one of the games that shined the light on this for me that really kind of was like, okay. What can I do to fix this was a couple years ago, I faced Matt Root Mm -hmm. in one of the final games leading up to the top eight of the LVO and I lost. I lost narrowly and it was in the last turn of the game when it came down to time. And what I realized at that moment was about three or four times in that last year, I had come down to the wire in clock time before the end of the game and ended up losing in those last minutes, not because I got timed out or because the time killed me. But because it got in my head and I was making mistakes because I was rushing myself, and it dawned on me that I had no experience being put under the wire like that. I had no mm-hmm. practice being, you know, the, trying to scramble in the last five minutes to do my turn. Yeah. And so what I realized I had to do was put myself in those situations. How many times do you practice a game and by turn three or four with your practice game, you're like, all right, it's decided, let's just go ahead and re-rack and do it again but you don't actually make it to that time you don't make it to that turn 6 with the clock under you yep. so you don't feel that pressure and you don't know how to handle it when you do so my recommendation here is one very very big one i'm sure people have heard it before and i know i've said it before practice does not make perfect perfect practice makes perfect do not practice like you're good like you're playing at home practice like you're playing a tournament use the clock use the rulers dial it in play tight And the reason why you want to practice it that way is because those are the habits you're going to learn and know. So when you get into the event, those are the habits you have to fall back on. Your muscle memory for doing that. It's just like in competition and other sports or whatever, where people will practice the same thing over and over over again. So they do it without thinking. It's the same thing with Warhammer. One of the big ones I recommend is perfect practice. Number one. Number two, I 100% cannot emphasize what Shay said enough. Find bigger fish. Find someone that's better than you, you know, in your area. And if you are the top dog in your area, something I used to have to do is I would actually drive to a couple towns over and find someone better than me. Mm -hmm. Even if it's someone different, maybe they're not like massively better than you, but they're different than your normal play group. Yep. Because you're eventually going to learn your friend's play styles and that won't help you. That won't help you as a player grow. A good one to do is find RTTs, find local events that you can just go to and really kind of push your envelope, push yourself out.
0: last thing I recommend is taking very copious notes because awareness of problems is what Josh's first example was. And you may not be aware of them if you're not taking careful notes to figure it out.
1: Exactly. Take notes. Lots of notes.
0: And uh, talk to your opponents afterwards if they're beating you at that level. Yes. Ask them what to do better. Again, those are all little things.
1: A lot of those top end players are more than happy to sit down and just kind of, you know, "Eh, this is some of the stuff you could have done differently. Most of the guys are more than willing to. Oh, yeah. Warhammer players talk. It's what we like to do.
0: I mean, Steve Pampreen sought me out at lunch and like sat down next to me at lunch and we chatted. I didn't realize it was him until I showed him where his new ga- where his cave was that next round. Right. Because <laughs> I didn't know what his face looked like. So, second to last question, really quick, is Danushta again. How do I not get in my own head when playing at high-stress scenarios like GTs? The answer is practice, because that's a skill, too. <laughs>
1: Perfect practice makes perfect, not not just practice.
0: The other thing I was going to add really quickly is that make yourself a physical distraction. Pom poms helped me from re- tilting myself and unbalancing myself because waving a pom pom has disrupted my entire mental routine. So just going to say, you may consider doing something like that, getting yourself a fidget cube or something.
1: And and that's one of the biggest things is you know Sean and I know we mentioned in the past, especially when you get in the high stress situations, to step away. Literally step away from the table, take a deep breath, get a drink of water, whatever. Step away from the situation. Allow yourself to look at it from the third party, not from being in the moment. It'll really help clear your head and help you focus, number one. Number two, get as many of those routines and many of the things you know about the game into muscle memory as you can.
0: Because that gives you more headspace to think about the game.
1: Yes. Less things you actively have to think about, it's easier to focus on what you need to think about. And when in doubt, when in doubt, I can't hammer this home enough. Danusta, please listen. When in doubt, in the middle of the game and you just don't know what to do, the mission, fall back to the mission. It will guide you every time. Exactly. Yes, I cannot emphasize that enough. When you're at a point where you're literally like, I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do right now. Don't just start going. I'm going to go assault that or I'm going to charge that or I'm going to shoot that. No. If you're at that moment, literally take a breath, stop, grab the mission. That will be your guide. It is your guide on what you need to do in that game. And at that point in your game, if you're really kind of getting a little bit lost, you're getting in your way, that mission, that mission packet is your North Star. Find it, and it will guide you. Because if anything you do at that moment in time is not leading you towards that mission, then you're wrong.
0: Yeah. And if this turns a wash, how can you set up to make next turn not a wash? exactly alright last one is from Preston I guess would be more about how you identify your own playstyle generally I feel like I'm a bit subpar because I'm not sure what would work for me
1: ooh this is a good one like Shay is a Grey Knight player that is what she is
0: (laughs) but I like to play aggressive forward leaning assault lists
1: yes there we go that's what I was waiting to hear she likes to be aggressive she likes to push she likes to in some way shape or form put the pressure on you alright
0: and I like to and I like to play little shenanigans with my magic, too, because it's like no one expects Grey Knights to do a lot of damage for magic until they do. Yep. I like having interactability in all phases. So those are things I like.
1: My playstyle for a number of years. And this was a fairly large portion of my career. I was the and I, I hate using the word, but it's an accurate word. I was the special snowflake. I always wanted to do something different. I wanted to make this unit good because everyone said it was bad. I wanted to be that guy. Yep. And I wrote whole armies around these complete far left wing, right wing, like out in the middle of nowhere ideas. Wrote whole armies around it and tried making them good. And that's what I wanted. That was my play style. My play style was whatever people said was bad, I was going to make good. And it's not a good. That's a horrible playstyle to a try and embody. It's and invariably ninety percent of the time, what you end up realizing is eighty percent of them is right because it's not good. So it took me a while to realize that that was actually my playstyle. It wasn't that I was a stand and shoot player, or a rush player. That was my playstyle, and I had to change that. Uh, ironically, that my playstyle now has become what I like to call toolbox, and that is my lists aren't really. They don't really do one thing amazingly well. It just kind of does, it has tools to do just about everything. It has the versatility to do a little bit of everything that I needed to do. And I, I've grown to like that play style because when you win with something like that, or when I win with something like that, I feel very rewarded. I feel like my my playing and the list really came together to make that happen. And it's very rewarding for me. So that's become my play style. Yeah. What you have to find, and the way to find this is, play some different style armies. Yeah. Play a, a gun line, play a tank line. I'm going to run Tau suits and sit in back and shoot. I'm going to run IG artillery and tanks. I'm going to run knights. I'm going to run uh horde tiranids. Play different styles and talk to some of your friends in your group and kind of get an idea of what the style lists of these different varying varieties are and see which one appeals for you and play them.
0: That's why I started with Tau is because Tau do the exact opposite of what I had been doing.
1: And it gave you that exposure to see if that's something you would enjoy.
0: And it's not that I don't mind doing the Tau and actually uh, Sean's horror he's discovered I'm really crazy do willing to do some pretty stupid stuff crazy stupid stuff with the fire warriors that i use as my screen but at the same time it's rather successful and that's because i've a very strong mastery of the assault phase
1: exactly a lot of the skills you have you don't realize may be better in a different army than what you've been running so yeah my huge recommendation is try try some different armies to see what really bites you see what kind of resonates with you and what you'll start to notice you'll start notice a trend well, I really like this army because it was very fast and aggressive. I didn't like these guys because it just kind of felt like I was standing still. Oh, well, that kind of seems like that's more your playstyle. So, I wouldn't recommend sitting and playing a gunline guard army. It's probably not going to be very rewarding for you. So, figure that part out. Know that. Once you get that general idea, then you can figure out which faction you want that's going to fit that playstyle best. And then to revolve a list around that type.
0: Yeah. And it's, as I said, I do like aggressive, hitty armies, but... I also get a certain vindictive pleasure of just blowing something off the table with a lot of firepower, so...
1: Who doesn't? Boom.
0: (laughs) The answer, yeah, as Josh said, try things, and also, again, take notes. You'll figure out what's right. So, uh, that concludes our episode. We have talked over our listener questions that are related to very interesting topics and analyzed our Capital City Bloodbats experiences pretty well. Again, really fantastic venue, the terrain was probably the weakest part of the whole experience and even then it wasn't that unreasonable because it reminded me of LVO.
1: Yeah, I would agree.
0: If the top like tournament in the entire world has terrain like this one, I think they're doing okay. There was no barren tables.
1: Oh yeah, there definitely wasn't that.
0: Again, highly recommend The Dragon Dreadnought, Honest Wargamer, 40k Stats Center. Those guys did great things for the tournament. And this has been Shaylen Allen
1: and Josh Death.
0: See you later.